Hello and welcome to another episode of the Migration and Diaspora podcast with me, your host, Loxanne Harley. Today I'm joined by Jenna Holiday to take a look at migration through the gendered lens. So a bit about my friend Jenna. Jenna is a migration, labour rights and gender specialist. She consults extensively for United Nations and other international organisations, in particular the International Labour Organisation, the International Organisation for Migration and UN Women providing expert support on integrating gender and labour perspectives into migration policy. Her work is predominantly focused on the Asia region. She is a member of the expert working group for addressing women's human rights in the Global Compact for Migration and has written widely on the extent to which development agendas respond to women migrant workers, including the recently published International Journal of Law in Context article titled Incongruous Objectives endeavouring to realise women migrant workers' rights through the global development agendas, which I've linked to in the show notes. I thoroughly enjoyed this chat with Jenna, as it allowed me to reflect on the way that I view gender and its effect on migration and migrant experiences. In this wide-ranging conversation, we look at various aspects of migration through the gendered lens, including what the data says, how migration governance frameworks consider gender, how gendered experiences increase vulnerabilities for migrant women, as well as how women migrating can represent a way to exercise agency when their life choices are constrained by gender inequalities. And I also asked Jenna how her own migration experiences have been gendered as well, and how the gender terminology and understandings of terms like gender mainstreaming are evolving within our community of work. We really hope you enjoy listening to this one, and if you do, or even if you don't, Feel free to get in touch and share your feedback via the website at loxanharley.com forward slash podcast or via the Facebook and Twitter pages. The handle is at the MDPcast. Without further ado, here's our interview. Okay, Jenna, welcome to the show. How are you and where are you calling from? Hi, Loxanne. Uh, I am calling from sunny, sunny, <clears throat> lockdown UK, lockdown Ireland. Um, <laughs> specifically from the southwest so uh in a little county called devon which is between a bright red high prevalence zone called cornwall and a bright red high prevalence zone called dorset because <laughs> that's essentially the way that i see the map at the moment so you're somewhat of a haven of safety <laughs> at the moment or relative safety yeah apparently everyone with their second home said driving through devon to get to cornwall I think. Okay. <laughs> we're over here along the on, along the coast eastwards a bit uh, in sunny sussex we're right in a red zone so um, oh you're that you're in the full red belly of the beast aren't you yeah exactly so um yeah kent no that's said it's it's special kent kentish strain of the virus with <laughs> with sussex and the rest of the country so uh, <laughs> we've got that to contend with anyway um tell us jenna first of all i mean what is your own migration slash diaspora story if you have one but i know you've been around a bit so tell us what is what is your migration story well yeah at the moment currently i am based in england and from england but um i did spend several years in southeast asia and specifically in cambodia um i was working as a lawyer in the uk and trained as a solicitor here and always had the intention that I wanted to cross over into human rights work, albeit at the time, actually, I had zero idea what that was. Um, There was just a compulsion, something in me. Um, And I went and volunteered for the Cambodian Centre for Human Rights in Phnom Penh. 
as a professional volunteer and just stayed there for, I think it was four and a half years in the end, picked up some consultancy work that led to some more consultancy work. And at the, at the outset, it was uh, legal analysis work. So where um, there was suggestion or advocacy to introduce a law, I would offer my services on a day rate to do an, an analysis of that law against um, international conventions. And then it developed into kind of actually doing some advice on policy and programming and implementation. I did quite a few years with UN Women's Country Office as they were setting up there. Um, and then I came back to do a master's fully intending to kind of go back out again to, to continue um, being a, a digital consultant nomad um, around the world and, and ended up picking up consultant work while I was still in the UK and just didn't leave so up until um this covid period i was kind of splitting my time between the uk and southeast asia and feeling incredibly grateful um for the ability to do it fantastic and and i'd like to also ask because we're talking about migration through the gendered lens today i would also like to ask if i may whether any aspects of your or which aspects of your migration experiences have been gendered such a good question, because this as soon as you ask that, I think to myself, you know, ha have they been like, have I actually had gendered experiences? Um, and I think in all honesty, I think this is when the issue of intersection comes into play. I am I, I migrated when I went to uh, Southeast Asia. Firstly, it was on um, a tourism visa and then it kind of converted to a business visa. Um, but I was uh, white, I had funding, um, you know, kind of educated adult woman from the global north. So there was a relatively uh, immediate social protection system there, just in terms of uh, people, just in terms of a network, sorry, um, of people there, of, of, um, of uh, uh, migrants there or expats there who were immediately you're kind of in the belly of that expat community um, who kind of look out for you um, so really actually I think probably a lot of those things uh, negated some of the more gendered experiences that I might have had um, there are certainly things to do with like sexual and reproductive health care that I think were a bit of a challenge to access and um, being told, I think I needed to go on the pill at one point of being told to go to the corner of two streets in Phnom Penh and ask for this lady's name and she would just give me boxes. She wow. would give me boxes of, I think it was called Marie and it was a pill called Marie and I had no idea what it was and what was in it. And I was just, you know, a friend said, go on that and you'll be fine. You know, there were elements like that, but I'm um, really kind of soft soft level so yeah I think I was actually um, pretty lucky to be in an experience where my my migration experience was very dissimilar to um, or very similar sorry to my male peers. Wow what, what a story and, <laughs> and so why is it important to look at migration through a gendered lens? Well gender uh, along with our other characteristics um, like nationality like ethnicity race or age um, it influences the way that we experience the world primarily because it influences kind of the way the world experiences us or the expectations that the world has of us. Um, and so that then influences access we have and barriers that face us. Um, so, for example, 
gender traditionally dictates that males take productive labor or engage in productive labor, whereas uh, reproductive labor is predominantly the preserve of women. So, you know, kind of creating something rather than uh, looking after something. Um, and that still kind of plays out. You know, we see that that still plays out. Similarly, gendered norms around dominance, power, subordination, that still really plays out as a root cause of violence against women and gender-based violence. Um, and these gendered norms and these um, kind of, uh, uh, what kind of becomes essentially a cultural norm, um, they play out as power dynamics that then restrict women or men's options to the same um, opportunities or to the, the same decisions. So um, women and men have different options or different uh, decisions available to them. Um, and we know, so we know that like in general terms, that's shifting, like thought in terms of thought leadership, things are becoming quite progressive in terms of gender. I think we have a much clearer understanding of how gender influences our um, access to opportunities or um, decision-making and things like that. But in practice, actually the manifestation of inequality is still fairly, solid and certainly you see you know COVID's been a great example times of crisis people really revert back to things that are safe and traditional and gendered norms and detrimental gendered norms kind of still fall into that category um, so when you look at migration uh, the importance of looking at migration through a lens um, of gender is because you start to see Kind of discrimination and inequality that then can tell you where the barriers are that are preventing access to uh, or equal access to safe migration and to decent work. So you start kind of seeing where those discrimination, uh, discriminatory practices exist or where the inequalities exist and how that's then kind of being interpreted in, in terms of migration and labour migration and manifesting as unequal experiences in migration and so on. Um, and this is, you know, it manifests in terms of the reason that people migrate, so it can be quite um, stark, you get an awful lot of migration uh, of women who are escaping situations of violence in the home, for example, so that can be a fairly um, clear example, but uh, it can also be uh, gendered in terms of the decision to migrate because maybe the family has decided on behalf of a woman or because the expectation actually conversely is on the man to migrate you know there can be gendered dynamics that influence decisions um, when there is migration the timing of migration can be influenced by gender so uh, certainly in the uh, <clears throat> in the event of um conflict and climate disaster and so on you often find that men are, uh, are migrating first in order to kind of forge the path and find safety and then they call on the family to migrate afterwards um, but then there's the options different options available to to men and women either through kind of sectoral um, discrimination that might um, identify different jobs as female jobs or, or men's jobs um, and then also expectations and duty to your family at home. So men and women often have um, or feel different expectations in relation to their uh, to their home family or to their diaspora and, and, and what to do. So really it's just a manifestation of kind of gendered norms and realities that we all face, but through the lens of migration. That's, that's really fascinating, Jenna. And I think you've given such a comprehensive and interesting overview there. And 
I was wondering if you had any data or statistics that you can point to that really underline some of these gender differences in the migration experience. Um, so migrant workers, I think predominantly the, the work that I do is, is on migrant um, labour, so labour migration, and it's usually south-south labour migration that I work on, sometimes it's south-north. Um, so the predominant migration that I work in is kind of low-skilled, um, temporary or circular migration, uh, irregular as well as regular, so not necessarily kind of looking at the uh, the kind of high skilled north north um but but looking at data generally half of about i think last year it was under half of migrants were women but it usually floats around the 50 percent um and that's for for kind of documented regular migrants we know that without data we can't tell specifically how many women there are who are migrating irregularly but we know that that's quite a significant phenomenon for women migrants so you know, you can quite easily put it at a, at a half half. Um, at the same time, you have a huge number of women who are working in domestic work. So it's a very significant feminized sector is uh, migrant domestic work. 74% um, of migrant domestic workers are women. Um, but when you look at the countries who have labor or social protections for domestic workers, it's very low. So um, around half of countries have any social protection for domestic workers and a half again will have any social protection that protects um, migrant domestic workers. So in that scenario, you can see a labor insertion that is particularly feminized. So it's an opportunity for women. It's one of the only opportunities um, for many women, um, but it's going into a sector, into a migration experience that ultimately isn't going to be protected by labor rights or by social protection. So. Um, it's a it's a kind of significant uh, gendered kind of story, the story of, of domestic work. Um, in terms of remittances, there's I think around half of remittance senders, and you know data kind of varies, but around half of remittances really received are from women, uh, and that's within the context of women having. Uh, lower paid jobs and also generally generally paying higher transfer fees either because they're paying smaller amounts each time or because they're reliant on cash transfers rather than maybe um kind of uh, formal financial systems um so you uh have a, a pretty kind of decent uh level of kind of financial contribution of of, of women to the um to to remittances to gdps of their home countries um, even despite, you know, many of them going through this migration that may actually be uh, irregular or into informal sectors or unprotected. Well, what you've said reminds me as well of a recent interview I, I conducted for my work with the Fijian diaspora in Australia. And I was speaking to a Fijian lady who said to me, it's the women who remind the men of their familial responsibilities. You know, if, uh, you know, because Fijians are, remit money home very frequently, like, like a lot of migrants do. And she was saying, it's, if, if it weren't for the women, the, the men would forget to, <laughs> to remit the money home as well. So I don't know, do you, do, does that resonate with any of the work you've done or any insights you have into these differences in not only, I guess, the amount that women and men remit differently, but in terms of the behavior of women migrants versus men migrants? Yes, I mean, certainly in terms of the way that it's, uh, the, the way that it manifests, 
you see that uh, women will uh, regularly migrate higher proportions of their lower wages and that it will go directly into education, health, support for the family, support for the community, in addition to higher levels of contact with family, with children and so on. Whereas, yeah, certainly context specific, but certainly there are examples of um, men either remitting lower amounts or just stopping remitting entirely after a certain period of time. Um, I was recently doing some work um, on the context of Tajikistan, and it's quite a phenomenon there that um, because the family unit is so dictated to young to to the youth of Tajikistan, you know, you're kind of essentially set up in your marriage fairly early on. Um, a lot of the male migrants that go to Russia for seasonal work actually end up staying. They may remarry. They may kind of find a level of liberty in Russia that they don't have at home. Uh, but ultimately, you have this kind of significant and growing number of um, female headed households in Tajikistan that are no longer supported by the male migrants. And there are different, you know, kind of varying stories along that line. But I think it's important to kind of work to work out at what point that is an essentialist female trait or whether that is also part of the norm, the cultural norm, the expectation on the um, you know, on the woman as a migrant, it's almost like, you know, if you do this, you still have to, like, is society asking those women to do this only within the, within the framework of being dutiful and, um, and remitting and, you know, you can have, yeah, it's not necessarily then being offered as a freedom, is it? It's, it's yeah, something it's that's being, it's a conditional, it's a conditional kind of contract. Um, mm. uh, whereas potentially you see uh, more examples of men actually seeking and finding and pursuing liberty through through their migration. So I think, yeah, we always have to be a little bit careful about being essentialist. But at the same time, certainly there is enough research to show that there are those differences in behaviour. Very interesting. And I think it's really cool as well how you've worked in so many different places you know you mentioned Tajikistan and you've done a lot of work in Southeast Asia and in other regions so I think that's that's another great reason to have you on the show because you know gendered experience are also very culture specific context specific and I want to sort of oh, just as a quick side note to in terms of language I don't want to get too stuck in semantics but in terms of language because language matters how how should do you have a take on how the appropriate language to use these days in terms of female migrants, women migrants, migrant women? I mean, I'm probably equally as guilty um, about this. To be honest, uh, as a pen for um, for many clients, for, you know, kind of different international UN agencies, um, often you find that different agencies have their preferences and, and the editor or I will be kind of directed towards a preference so to be honest I probably don't even have a, a preference I generally say women migrant workers or migrant women mm. um, rather than females uh, but I wouldn't be surprised if there are people who are up in arms about that precisely one of my clients also that gave us guidelines last year at some point that it should be women and not female migrants I mean, it's an interesting debate, but we're not going to get into that, I guess. But uh, but I guess that recognises gender identities is, uh, over uh, sex. Yeah, exactly. It is. I mean, I think it's still, um, it's actually quite emergent. I think that's what we yeah. really know from this. And it's the same when you talk about LGBTQI in terms of gender, because there is obviously a, a, a bit of a conflation within the acronym of sexuality and gender identity. And so... Um, 
there, I get asked a lot to incorporate the experiences of um, lesbian, gay, bisexual migrants into gender work. And I say, well, you know, it's obviously it's important to incorporate the experience of transgender and binary, um, uh, sorry, uh, non-binary individuals, but like we need to discuss at what point there is that kind of overlap or you want to start inc incorporating sexual se sexuality into the into the conversation about um, gendered experiences. But like you say, maybe maybe an entire other episode. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And we talk a lot about the well in the in the descriptions that you've just provided in terms of these different gendered experiences of migration. You've talked, I think very rightly, about a lot of the factors of vulnerability and, and precarity. So could you perhaps elaborate on, on those different factors that, that render women more vulnerable as migrants in terms of their migration experiences? And then second of all, is it all about precarity or are there certain opportunities that women have that men don't. So the issue of precarity, when we talk about women, um, especially labour migration, it's 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 really kind of driven by opportunity again. It's driven by what is the access, what is the opportunity, what is available. Um, so there is this there is this thing that I read I really enjoyed reading about thin and thick agency. I don't know if you've come across it. It was actually in relation to child marriage. So it was about um, looking at kind of uh, uh, adolescents who were choosing marriage because actually within the limited options that they had available to them in the structure that they lived in, actually this gave them the most freedoms. Um, and I think you can kind of apply that to labour migration a lot with women migrant workers. You can you can look at uh, the options, the opportunities, the access is really very limited and then a lot of the time you then see women ex expressing quite a lot of agency within that. So they are expressing choice within limited choice. And by that I mean um, discriminatory policies and practices essentially kind of manifest as you know practical limitations on the ability of women to access um, regular migration opportunities, the sectors that are available for them to work in may be limited. So you have domestic work or you have low skilled or unskilled, what's considered unskilled manufacturing, or you have work in the service sector that is um, potentially informal. Um, those things ultimately mean that you are limiting the access to kind of safe migration, regular migration, decent work, and all of the actors and the routes and the um, logistics that come with those things. So if you're only limited to the informal sector into, or, or to irregular migration, um, then you are limited to the actors and the logistics and the routes that come with those things. And so that's where the precarity comes. So it's not necessarily inherent to women, obviously. It's not that they're necessarily vulnerable as a, um, a gender, but you have uh, the limited options compounded by um, you know, kind of continued prevalence of gender-based violence or violence against women, um, again, that are more likely to maybe be seen within those precarious routes or by those the actors that work within those routes, and, you know, less likely to be able to access services or healthcare or, or help or, or support if you're in those irregular routes or in informal employment. So you end up with kind of 
essentially a structural system of, of precarity that 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 is the limit the limited uh, the options limited to women are kind of within that structure um but within that you also as i was saying earlier on get um this high proportion of remittances and social uh, remittances that contribute to changes in kind of normative understanding of um, gender or what women are able to do or um, you know kind of progressive ideas or more educated children or whatever it is um, so so really it's this kind of continuing story of women actually exercising a lot of strength and resilience within a structure that has limited their options um, and the work that we do when we're looking at gender and migration and we're looking specifically at the, the situation of women migrant workers is to say like let's let's level the playing field at the outset let's provide women and men with the same opportunities let's treat them the same let's make sure that they go in with the same skills or their skills are recognized that they've got access to the same level of decent work and you remove that kind of whole narrative around their vulnerability as some kind of core aspect of of migration or migrants. I think that's a really nice and positive way of, of putting it and a more nuanced way of explaining it as well. And so what, what was the concept called that you just described? This thin, thick agency? Oh, thin and thick agency. And I probably, I can't remember who, who wrote it. And I probably, yeah. they're probably, um, you know, shouting at the computer as I speak, because I've, I've, I've taken the idea and kind of ripped it apart and put it back together for my own needs. But um, yeah, it's the idea really, it just, it just kind of spoke to me, the idea that, and I suppose resilience sits in this as well, the idea that, that within um, restricted options, people play out their full uh, agency, their, their, full, their full array of choices. Yeah, no, I mean, I just <laughs> thought it was, it, and it's quite an intuitive way of describing it and it, it speaks to me as well and I also wanted to ask about men and, and men migrants migrant men uh, are there any specific vulnerabilities challenges etc that affect migrant men more than women that we should perhaps pay more attention to uh, so it really all kind of follows through the same for me it's, it follows through the same story it's kind of the same entry point it's where is the precarity where is it that um either either through the sectors that are pulling migrants into informal work or in, you know, through a regular migration um, uh, or, you know, kind of discriminatory uh, practices that are reducing their access. And so for men, um, absolutely that story plays out. It's specifically when you look at in, in, in the South, um, South Asia, Southeast Asia context, you see fishing. Um, fishing is a gendered sector in terms of the work on the boat is predominantly done by men uh, and it's largely also an if informal sector especially the deep sea fishing right now there's an awful lot of um, men who are being taken uh, or migrating into either into a regular fishing scenario or formal fishing scenario, or they're migrating regularly with a promise of formal agricultural work, but ultimately they're ending up on a fishing boat. They're going out to sea, they're then not coming back because of the hub boats, the hub systems that deep sea fishing has, that means that you can be essentially kind of swapping uh, laborers around the boats out at sea and not be bringing them back. So there's this whole deep dark 
scenario going on um, with irregular uh, migration into forced labour over in the sea fishing that is predominantly men. And then we've also seen, of course, there's the construction industry uh, in the Middle East. Um, and specifically, there was an awful lot of attention on Qatar and the conditions um, for construction workers in Qatar, who are also predominantly men. Um, but the story kind of follows the same thing. It's, you know, what is, is it's a sector that's pulling in a particular gender for particular type of work. Um, so, of course, there's always going to be those, um, there's always going to be those examples. And it's important to not, uh, you know, it's important to get the balance, essentially, when you're working in gender, you don't want to just focus on women to absolutely the detriment of being able to identify um, gender discrimination and detrimental gen gender norms or, or, or practices or policies as they apply to men or specifically, you know, you, there's an awful lot of discrimination and violence against transgender and non-binary individuals. Um, but it's also recognizing that the uh, situation for women is often inherently more structural at the outset. So it's often a structural gender inequality that exists within the community the, of origin and the community of destination to, you know, maybe to different extents, but essentially it's still there. Um, and so can be more heavily kind of written into the law almost. So you have more kind of gender blind policy or overtly gender discriminatory policy that is, um, you know, kind of entrenching this discrimination against women migrant workers, maybe less so than you would find um, when it comes to these specific sectors of men. Okay, and let's talk a little bit more then about how these gendered aspects of migration then manifest in terms of what different stakeholders are doing. So, you know, how are different migration-related stakeholders, you know, governments, the types of agencies that we work with, and so on, taking these gendered aspects into account, or perhaps not taking them into account enough? As always, there's a complete range. Um, there are... I think the time of gender mainstreaming in that kind of broad way, I think that might have now passed slightly. So certainly when I came into the sector 10 years ago, um, it was all around gender mainstreaming and gender mainstreaming really was just writing and women after every uh, sentence. Yeah. <laughs> Do you remember it, Loxanne? <laughs> I, I, for me, it was not <laughs> even very long ago that that was, I don't know, I've had gender mainstreaming people edit some of my reports and in the past for various clients and I felt that sometimes the comments are not particularly they don't seem to really encourage what I would consider as a meaningful integration of gender considerations right exactly so that's and that's really where the um where the range sits it's about how meaningful do you want the consideration to be um and some of that is about resource and some of that is about understanding and some of that is about, again, actually some of it's about kind of, you know, how much agency the person you have has within the, the structure they're working in. So I, I had brilliant conversations. I was working with um, uh, a government recently and there were people in one of the departments that really were very compelled to understand how uh, gender manifested in practice and how uh, what some of the suggestions might be to address these barriers that women were facing 
but then they were not able, they were struggling to be able to, um, you know, translate that into action going up the top of the, the policy chain. So they were, um, you know, kind of getting to the political level and people weren't interested. So at the technical level within the government, they were very much engaged, but at the political level, it wasn't something that anybody was really interested in doing. They just wanted to change the law, say they changed the law and move on. Um, and there's a bit of that. I mean, there was a bit of tussle and it ended up kind of being a bit half and half. But so so I find that there's certainly more of that that I'm seeing, that there's a little bit more, at least a little bit more kind of meaningful exchange, um, even if it's at the technical level. Could you give us perhaps an example or point to any good practices where this gender lens that we're talking about has been applied in a way that has improved the outcome of a project or improved a research process or policy? So the stuff I always really point to is um, data and representation, which are kind of the same thing. So really it's just about continuously understanding specifically what is happening in the context and not being, not conflating one situation to another situation, um, not, not conflating, you know, one, migratory route of women from X village to another town over the border um, and not even conflating the situation of each of the women in that migrant flow, you know, recognizing that, you know, we are um, working with humans. And so that means that there's going to be different experiences and things are going to be um, subjective and needs are going to change. And that ultimately what we're trying to do is, is um, you know, address these kind of structural barriers and make sure that you're creating safe migration, decent work. So data for me is a key. Understanding the realities of the people that are moving and where those realities are gendered or where the dynamics are gendered. So gender disaggregated data then is key. Um, then dis disaggregating data by migratory status is also key. But on top of that, it's representation. It's making sure that the migrants themselves are able to raise their voices and say what their experiences is, experiences are. Um, and so that's largely through unions and through civil society representatives. <clears throat> so some of the most effective work that I've seen really is empowering those voices um, and connecting the workers with each other, connecting the workers with organizations that can either connect them or can amplify their voices or can collect that data to be able to say this is what we are seeing this is how the women are you know responding to the intervention that's been put in place this is how the law is manifesting in practice and so on so i'm continuously advocating for data research and representation and wherever i see those things happening I think that's where you see the change and that's where you get to kind of give you know the compelling advocacy or com bring compelling advocacy to the politicians and you know you start being able to maybe feed that in um to the kind of political realm and say look you know there's this data that says if you do x y and z um migrant workers benefit in this way and that benefits you or if you don't this is how it's detrimental to a certain sector of your uh, of your migrants or in or the or the labor um, and, you know, increasingly, certainly in supply chain work, you're seeing that that's uh, coming through as consumers choosing not to um, consume through that supply chain or, you know, kind of make other different decisions. So, um, so yeah, I'm, I'm about data, research and representation. 
that's a very good way of summarizing it. I also wanted to ask briefly as well, I know you've been working on, on a few different studies that also have this gender angle. So could you tell us a bit more about some of that ongoing and recent work that you've been involved in? Um, yeah, so I did some work uh, on, like I say, Central Asia, which was actually a little bit new to me, but because uh, it was COVID times, it was all desk work, um, I was quite happy to kind of, uh, yeah, learn a new area and, and meet, um, expand the network. Uh, so I was looking into the um, effect of COVID on the resilience of migrants in Central Asia and I was part of a team that was kind of working across the Asia region um, and so specifically looking into the situation of migrants in Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan and in the Kyrgyzstan uh, um, context I was looking at internal migration and how um, in Kyrgyzstan the internal migration is into the cities it's largely uh, younger families that are moving into the cities um, and I was looking at that uh, um, kind of crossing over the dynamic of the increase in violence against women in the cities and trying to see whether we were able to say um, or, you know, identify uh, uh, an increase in the risk for migrant women of violence against women um, in that context than non-migrant women. And essentially what we were finding was that uh, Firstly, the kind of stress levels in those households were arguably higher because um, a lot of the migrants uh, in, in the capital in Kyrgyzstan were not registered, so they weren't um, necessarily able to access the same level of state protection that other people were getting under COVID. Um, but they were also less likely to be able to access any of the services or support um, or, you know, escape any situation of violence against women. So that was really interesting, kind of looking at that as a crossover. Um, but I've also been doing, I've just had a paper published about, um, I called it incongruous objectives. The idea was to, like, I was trying to be Tarantino, but it didn't necessarily <laughs> work. <laughs> it's about how the global migration governance frameworks meet the needs of migrant women. So I was looking at the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals, and the Global Compact on Migration, and both of which ha have gone some way. So the paper kind of explores the extent to which both of those have gone some way to meet the needs or at least recognise some of those gendered um, issues in migration. Uh, but how the practice, the implementation of those, both of them are voluntary, of course, and then and their reporting requirements um, mean that actually the uh, likelihood of these frameworks actually usefully kind of converting into implementation or indeed reporting of implementation is very low. So kind of looking at how we can strengthen those global frameworks in order to meet the needs of migrant women. I think that's really interesting and both of those studies sound very interesting and I'm glad you mentioned especially the second one because that was one of the questions that I neglected to ask you was about these global frameworks so it's useful, useful to have your take and that one's published already you say? Yes that's published okay. um, it's ILJC. Great well I'll be reading that and I'll link to that in the show notes as well for listeners who are interested in learning more. Uh, but, you know, I'd love to keep talking more, as I say in a lot of my podcast episodes, because it, this is such a, an interesting topic with so many layers and complexities and intersections and so on. But for now, I, I want to thank you very much for your time and just ask, how can listeners connect with you and learn more about your work? 
I have um, a very slow professional social media presence that um, anybody's welcome to uh, slowly join. But uh, on LinkedIn and Twitter, um, Jenna K. Holiday or just Jenna Holiday on, on LinkedIn. Um, and I generally kind of put my work up there or, or I certainly find LinkedIn, I'm connecting a lot more with people there and I'm really appreciating Roxanne, the stuff that you put up there and you link a lot of us together. And I've certainly kind of been connected with some old peers, in fact, through you and um, some current peers. It's nice that you're kind of slowly bringing together um, our weird little disparate world into to the sense that, that maybe we are one. Um, so yeah, LinkedIn is, is a good place to find me. Jenna, thank you so much again for your time. Really appreciate it. You're doing some really fascinating work, some very, very valuable work. So thanks for your contributions. Thanks for sharing your views and insights on the podcast and all the best for 2021. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Luxanne. And the same to you. I look forward to um, hearing us on the podcast way soon. Thank you so much for tuning in to today's episode of the Migration and Diaspora podcast. If you've enjoyed it, you can check out the podcast website at loxanharley.com forward slash podcast. There you can subscribe to the mailing list or get in touch if you want to be on the podcast. Be sure to follow the podcast via your favorite podcasting platform and leave a review if you can. Thanks again and see you next time.